0: Hello, and welcome back to a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven. And I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have a very interesting show. I have invited on a very dear friend and colleague, Elisabeth Satouras. I want to tell you a little bit about Elizabeth, and then we'll be going into really sort of bringing forward this incredible life that she has had and continues to have, and bringing forward some of her fundamental ideas that she has put into circulation planet-wide. In a lot of the consulting she has done, a lot of the teaching she has done, a lot of the writing that she has done in her numerous books. So here's a little bio on Elizabeth, and uh, then we will open it up and uh, dive right in. Elizabeth Santoris, PhD, is an evolution biologist, futurist, author, speaker, and consultant on living systems design, showing the relevance of evolving biological systems to organize and organized design. She has traveled as a speaker to literally all continents on the planet. She has made television and radio appearances in addition to live speeches and workshops. Dr. Satoras is both a US and Greek citizen with a PhD from Canada. She did her postdoctoral work at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, taught at the University of Massachusetts, MIT, was a science writer for the Horizon Nova TV series. She was invited by China by the Chinese National Science Association, organized Earth Celebrations 2000 in Athens, Greece, and has been a UN consultant on Indigenous projects. She is a participant in the Humanity 3000 dialogues of the Foundation for the Future, the Synthesis Dialogues with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamasala, and consults with corporations and government organizations, in Australia, Brazil, and the United States. She's written several books, Biology Revision, A Walk Through Time, From Stardust to Us, and Earth Dance, Living Systems in Evolution. So it's truly a pleasure to have Elizabeth on A Better World to talk about and to unpack a life full of rich thought, feeling, and commitment to, well, you know, creating a better world. So Elizabeth, welcome, aloha, so great to have you from Hawaii uh, in our New York studio, essentially. So, wow, you have just had a, a stellar life in so many ways, and you continue to produce and manufacture and write and teach, uh, Evolutionary Leader Circle you gave a talk to not that long ago, which I loved. You've been really hailed as one of the uh, prominent thinkers in the 20th and 21st centuries, and it's, it's beautiful to see, and your thoughts and books have had serious impact. Where did all this begin? What, what inspired you um, early on in your life to move in this direction, and where are you from?
1: Aloha nui to you, my dear friend Mitchell, and to our audience uh, from, yes, in Hawaii, in the mid-Pacific, an interesting perspective on planet Earth. I uh, was born in the Hudson Valley, and I have, from
0: a, here.
1: I have a tree behind me now, and uh, within a mile of the hospital I was born in, in Cairo, New York... They pronounce it Cairo when it's in Egypt, but it's Cairo in the Hudson Valley. Uh, Within a mile of that in the quarries where we used to jump in and swim when I was a kid, uh, they discovered a fossil of the largest tree ever found and the oldest tree ever found. It's really an amazing thing for me because I am such a tree lover to know that I was born right among the roots, so to speak, of the most ancient tree of the world, the biggest one. Uh, I still have the mud of the Hudson River between my toes. I can remember the feel of squishing around among the lily pads and collecting frogs and salamanders and things that we were allowed to keep in a big old iron bathtub in the yard (laughs) for a while. Turtles, even snapping turtles occasionally. (laughs) And uh, uh, I was blessed to be consigned to nature so to speak by my very busy mother who was running a boarding house almost single-handedly doing all the laundry the cooking the cleaning the organizing the bookkeeping you name it and so she we were as little kids we were like shoved out the door in the morning with a peanut butter sandwich or something and come back at sunset right <laughs> it was maybe that's a bit of, of an exaggeration <laughs> but in the winter, my father rigged up lights in the backyard so we could keep playing in the snow until it was actually supper time. since it gets dark at four o'clock in upstate New York in yes. the winter, and we built snow houses there. Anyway, uh, it was a most fascinating childhood because I was out in nature communing with it with no grownups watching what I was doing or telling me how to relate to it. And so if I wanted to be with a woodpecker who was too high in a tree for for me to climb up, I could take my mind up and be with that woodpecker. Uh, and, And there were no boundaries of the kind I was taught later between myself and the rest of nature. And there was nothing in my book to be afraid of, even if occasionally you got stung by a wasp or, you know, something we would cross uh, roaring creeks on slimy logs and <laughs> play, uh, fix up old boats to take out onto the Hudson. And in the winter, we crossed the, the Hudson River on the ice, walking
0: that really? same
1: ice that was harvested in blocks and delivered to my mom for her ice box. <laughs> this is I 80 I'm almost 86 and and uh, I was born in 1936 uh at the very beginning of it as a double aquarian by the way so I've always uh, been destined I think to be a big picture thinker.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: uh, so I got that that almost complete immersion in nature from the from the get go and and there was nothing in my book to be afraid of some of the boarders would say ah that that little mouse is going to grow up into a big rat and you can't be playing with these things and right? I, I'm, we're thinking grown up I'd say to my little brother, what do they know? They don't even know that mice don't turn into rats, right? <laughs> and we would scoop baby bunnies out of holes in the lawn and, and run them through our sunsuits for the warm, delicious feeling of their furry little bodies and then put them back. And the moms didn't abandon them as a the grown up said they would, uh, because the moms, they knew they could pick up the vibes of innocent children. and And that was not something for them to shun either. So that intense. So interesting, Elizabeth,
0: because (laughs) you're you're laying out a kind of idyllic uh, childhood that used to be so common, and today so many children are raised not even on grass but on cement, and so you had this beautiful and what was extremely common and natural look we call it a luxury now of being able to commune, live inside of nature, and all of her wonderful little furry animals, and love them, freely love them, and allow your imagination, like you were describing about the woodpecker, to go there and sit on the branch with him or her, you know, and peck away, you know, and have that experience as though internally. So doesn't it make beautiful sense? And this is why I wanted to kind of ask you about this, that you became a biologist with an emphasis on evolution and understanding the, the breadth that you do of our inherent relationship to nature. I, in fact, sometimes I say to people, and I'd love to hear what you have to say this about this, we don't even have a relationship to nature because we are nature. So when you have a relationship, it's as though it's with something outside of you. But here, it's not. It's one. But that's not our usual consciousness. Our usual way of thinking is that we're here and it is there. So your thoughts?
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, I wanted to be a biologist early. You know, I was skipped ahead in school and there was no kindergarten when I started school. And so I was 10 years old in the seventh grade and uh, and I had a biology teacher for the first time. And I knew that I wanted to be a biologist right then and there. We were dissecting frogs and stuff in class. And I knew where I wanted to go. Wow. Um and that was it, it. As you said, it was an idyllic time in so many ways. You know, shopping was going from farm to farm in my father's Model T Ford with a loaded up vegetables my mom had grown to give to other people, and then we'd pick up chickens and eggs at one farm and and milk uh, from a cow that was designated for our family, and made we made butter out of, and another farm. And so and one fruit farm had a cider mill and fruit and honey. And we watched him working with the bees, Uncle Gus, you know, with the bees. And so I lived on 100 percent organic food long before the word organic was coined. And we 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 lived in harmony with nature. The entire Hudson Valley was populated by European immigrants uh you know who knew how to farm and who traded fertilizer and food and things like that so even oh. though things were rationed and we had to buy illicit sugar in hundred pound bags in new york city hidden in my father's truck and we would sit on it in really? blankets covering it It was black market sugar so that my mom could can all these fruits and things for the winter
0: right why was it illegal <laughs>
1: Uh, it was because it was rationed. So you couldn't buy quantities of sugar, you, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. right. So uh, anyway, that that ideal, I bless my childhood, uh, you know, and and the business of no grown ups watching was important because no one yeah. said, don't climb that tree. You'll fall. You'll hurt yourself, you know, things like that. And I wrote a poem for kids on Earth Day once uh, much later. Uh, that was called No Grown Ups Watching. And it was the things I learned from climbing high so you could see far, mm-hmm. from crossing fences that said no trespassing, from walking out on the river ice in the winter. And I would followed up with, we're all walking on thin ice now, and we all have to break some rules now. And we all have to have a big picture view of things you know, by seeing far.
0: Metaphors galore. So-
1: metaphors galore and it was wonderful unfortunately my parents uh kind of pushed me into going to art school in university where I went at 16 because they they were they they, you know this was a time when girls went to college to get a good husband (laughs) if if they went at all (laughs) and and my biology didn't make sense to them as a You know, what was I going to do? Become (laughs) that. Oh, did I want to be a medical illustrator? Because I had talent as an artist, they said. Yeah. So I was pushed toward art and I didn't get to study science until I was a graduate student. But eventually I did. uh, It's funny. It's
0: usually the other way around. Some people get pushed into math and science and they really want to be an artist. Here, it was the inverse.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So I did become an evolution biologist. And it was because I, from early as a child, had been interested in the in the questions of who are we and where did we come from and where we headed, not knowing they were the great philosophical questions of all time. Right. Sure. Uh, that I just naturally came upon these kinds of, of questions of wanting to know and assuming that the answers lay in the study of nature. I was a natural creature, and I was
0: was, part of it. (laughs) I was born in New York City, in Queens, actually. And I asked those same questions of myself very early on. Honestly, when I was four, five, and six is when I began. But because of my milieu, I was given toward more philosophy, psychology, Mm -hmm. existential thought, which is, of course, my mother was training me in it. At that very early age, for lots of reasons. But you had a closer relationship to nature back then, and you turned to nature for answers. I taught, I turned instead to these subjects, but the same fundamental questions.
1: Yeah, and I never wavered from seeing nature as the most phenomenal teacher for humans and I'm still preaching that.
0: <laughs> yes well I turned in your direction and not to become a scientist <laughs> but to appreciate nature so there is biomimicry at base in virtually everything I think and I know you were born that way you know So what then happened? you you've traveled the world, you've lived in Greece, you're part Greek, You've lived in Mallorca. You've lived in different parts of the world. You've traveled extensively sharing your thoughts and convictions uh, about what the world needs to know about its own process. How would you describe some of what you felt was your guiding thoughts and themes over the course of these years? Well, the
1: guiding the guiding principle always was: what can we learn from nature, and how can it make human evolution more successful? <laughs> you know, um, I did. I, I've lived a phenomenally interesting life. I've I've been privileged as a speaker to be in the most diverse set of venues. I reckon any speaker has ever been allowed to speak in, from big corporations and universities to science conferences. To fashion conferences, to UFO conferences, to I mean, you name it. I've been all over the map. Spend time in Peru
0: with indigenous people, and yeah,
1: a little bit about that. Well, I was a co-founder of something called the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network because in in looking at and in being a scientist to, to learn from nature. I also recognized that, uh, and this was part of my training, Mitchell. Uh, as a graduate school, as a, as an early graduate student in science, we were asked to design a science by writing out the axioms on which it would be founded. And this was a philosophy of science course, uh, in which I became aware that a science only works if it has a worldview which is called the set of axioms the Mm -hmm. set of statements on which it rests
0: sure
1: and so i was of course trained in, in what i call western science okay and western science has as its foundational statements things like the universe is made up of matter and energy the universe can be studied objectively as though you were not a part of it the the um uh uh they added in after a while the whole universe is run it's it's meaningless it's purposeless it's material and it's running down by something called entropy it dissipates its energy over time. This is essentially Newtonian
0: and to some extent Einsteinian uh, yes. theology. If you don't mind my using that word. <laughs>
1: Well, yes, that's what I came to recognize it as later. But it was without that belief system, you can't have a science, you see. Right. And and the axioms are written by whatever the founders of a science take for granted as being reality. Correct. And humans are storytelling creatures. And that's how we live by these stories. So you see, you cannot make up a theory or test it, if you have no idea what a universe is. You can't talk about a universe without some conception of what it is, which is what the axioms are all about. But you have to start somewhere. You have to start with a set of statements that are the beliefs in the minds of the, whoever is founding the science. So I began to recognize that there's more than one science in the world yeah. and uh, and i held some some international symposia uh, over time to test out what Bring together a very wide variety of people with PhDs in Western science, but people who came from different cultures and were taught Western science, write out the axioms you were taught. What were the foundational beliefs you were taught? We ended up with hundreds of statements and whittled them down into like 10 basic ones. Uh huh. And so uh, the first symposium was about what is this paradigm shift we're talking about? Well, I, I wanted to map out what was the, the standard, standard model of physics worldview that we have been taught? And what was it that we were shifting to? Sure. Well, of course, because of quantum scientists all turning to Vedic science from India to explain their findings when they pushed all the way down through matter to pure oh, energy and yeah. cosmic consciousness, sure. uh, they, had, they, they had no axioms, except By going to Vedic science, where they had a different set of axioms where the universe starts as a field of consciousness and then slows the vibrations down into matter and energy. So so really was a comparison of Vedic science and Western science that we were looking at for this shift. And that was back. But
0: but Niels Bohr and the other early quantum physicists did formulate a mathematics that depicted, detailed, that larger perspective on the relationship of matter and spirit, actually, and energy. Correct?
1: Yes, that is true. And that I had to go into the foundations of mathematics for that one. (laughs) Right. So math also rests on a set of axioms. In fact, that's where we first got the word axiom. The concepts of axioms and and uh, yes. in mathematics uh, that, that in mathematics to say yes. there are objects and there are relationships, right? And uh, and and so the the universe is is made of things and of relationships between the things. And then I found out that some indigenous sciences had a very different view. I called, I I ran into Benjamin Lee Whorf's work. Oh, yeah, the linguist. And and he became extremely important to me because Mm. he made sense of how different cultures perceive the world differently through language. And that the Indo European languages were based on this concept of separating things and actions, like. Water that falls make a waterfall. Stars that shine, yeah. you know. And and in an indigenous language like Hopi or Nootka, you can't make that separation. It's a process language where the shiningness of the star is the star.
0: Yeah, the
1: fallingness There's of the water There's not a subject and object. There, there are, are no objects. The way
0: we think sequentially, linearly, there is. It's almost a gestaltic language where everything is happening, if you will, at once. A, a thing we call a star is providing shining, a verb.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, is that so, the, so that kind of a language would start with a concept like feasting mm-hmm. and then bring in what will be feasted and, and who will be coming to it. And it all gets woven together in a coherent whole where everyone is aware of the planning process and the actual event and the aftermath of the event as a flow uh, through a timeline, right? Yes. With, when it's always eternal now, but you're flowing through, you're, you're running right. your life through that eternal now. Right? That's a very important point you're making,
0: Elizabeth, is that is what is time in different linguistic structures, for instance, the Chinese, as far as I understand, and my Chinese is very limited, but uh, they do not have a past, present and future as we conceive it. I mean, it's an ideogrammatic language anyway. It's pictorial. And so it's one image after another, which again is, if you will, a gestalt style in the moment, snapshot of reality moving from one to another but not the way our language, you know, grammatics in English lead us.
1: That's right. And so I ended up with this keyboard model where I, uh, what I what all the that. scientists seem to agree on. And by the way, yeah. I did another symposium on Islamic science and the and the poor Islamic scientists and philosophers had no idea what I was trying to get at when I wanted them to write out their axioms, but eventually <laughs> they did it. And it was fascinating because by then I had uh, a material universe of Western science and I had a consciousness-based universe from... Vedic science, quantum science. And now I got one that actually turned out to be a living science because axiom number one was Allah created the universe, right? This is Islam. Axiom number two was um, Allah created a living universe and told us to study it. And so there was this profound study of nature in Islamic science and I thought, wow, you know, the, there's a parliament of world religions uh, yeah. that that agree on certain fundamentals, and then act as kind of interesting checks and balances to each other. Why can't we have a global parliament uh, or a, a global consortium of sciences, including indigenous sciences? Yeah. And I wanted Taoist science to come in there and 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 have them all agree that they that science is science because it rests on a set of assumptions and that you can build science on different assumptions and then have the living sci- living nature kinds of interested sciences be check and balance on the western science which which led to a lot of technology so that you can say ah but you can't have technology that interferes with nature's well-being <laughs> right and, and that this would be really, really important in the world to have the exactly. same friendly interchange among these sciences, recognizing them, because Western science is completely arrogant about thinking it's the only one. You're also uh,
0: implying the possibility of a moral compass emerging from a biological understanding. Oh. and. That is an entire interesting subject in itself, which is the biology of morality, just as there is the idea of a biology or physiology Mm -hmm. of altruism, of kindness, of cooperation, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. neuroscience and neuropsychology are speaking of these days, as a newer, better, more thorough understanding of Darwinian evolution.
1: Well, if you want to understand ethics, study your own body. It's the most ethical consortium of cells you can imagine. (laughs) If any part of the body is injured, resources immediately go there, and the rest of the body allows that to happen. Even though they may have a little less adrenaline or whatever at the moment, there's an awareness that the whole depends on the health of all of the parts. That is beautiful. Um, so you you have You're ethics, totally right, yeah. and you have economics. I mean, look at yes, look at exactly. the economics of of uh, uh, of the of the blood supply so in the blood the, supply. In I mean, how <laughs> is it
0: that how is it that a liver can take over some of the functions of a kidney? You know, I mean, how does that happen? Except for, I mean, our understanding of stem cells these days helps us understand that kind of wait a minute, you are entirely different organs. How can you do this? Except they do.
1: Well, let me go back for a minute to I started mentioning I had a keyboard model that yeah, all the sciences seem to agree somehow that the universe is made of vibrations. That doesn't seem to be a very controversial issue. At base, <laughs> correct. And so, thanks to Vedic science you, for if,
0: articulating it so well. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Sanskrit, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> You what? And Sanskrit, by the way.
1: Talking about
0: the language affecting consciousness.
1: Oh, yes. And so, what uh, if you just arrange vibrations in a sequence, you can use the metaphor of a keyboard, an infinitely long keyboard, right? And so, if you put matter in the low keys, the slow, vibrations of matter in the low keys and then move it up into electromagnetic energy as you go up the keyboard. By that time, Einstein showed us, hey, energy is matter. Matter is energy. You can transpose the music up and down between these two, right? And then Western science gets stuck. It can't go higher up in the keyboard because things get less and less material as they, as you go up the keyboard into Ooh. mind and consciousness. And because Western science decreed that things are real only if they're measurable, to be measurable required a matter, an instrument made of matter. So you can't measure the consciousness, the spirit, (laughs) you know, that end of the keyboard, you're stuck. The Eastern sciences started at the other end of the same keyboard, the same universe. And so they, as I said before, they can slow down and see how you get, eventually. you get, uh, we're up to zero point energy. That's the highest mm-hmm. we can reach. They can go back down to through zero point energy to electromagnetic energy to matter, right? With no problem. So the Taoist keyboard, for instance, is exactly that matter energy spirit. Just what I uh, was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so and, and Taoism is very much about the human in nature role. You see, so that was why I thought that was the important fourth one to have after the material universe, the consciousness-based universe, the living biological universe, and then the one that connects humans to nature.
0: That's right.
1: And really asks how do Heaven, we
0: man and exist
1: earth within one that unified context.
0: field in the Taoist yeah. worldview.
1: So. So that one is very much about the context of nature. And and I remember my son, you know, long ago asked me, why do you have to talk about the whole universe to explore anything? And I had to think about that. And I said, you know, I think it's because I'm a context chaser. Yes. I said, you know, uh, a, a rose is a very different thing to a donkey or to a perfume manufacturer or to a lover or to a gardener. Uh, yeah. It depends on the context that this rose is perceived in. And it looks very different to a cat and to a rat and, you know, to a <laughs> tree perhaps. Um, so uh, Chasing... True. That once you get point. to a context, you see, you find that that bubble has a larger context than a larger. So as a biologist, if you're into, you know, particles within molecules, within atoms and molecules and then cells and then cell groups and organs and tissues and bodies and communities and societies and planets, and <laughs> you get all the way up to the universe. Chasing contexts.
0: <laughs> exactly. You, you, and it begs the subject of fractality. So understanding that as a biologist, if you're looking in a microscope, you have one universe and then you continue to expand outward, you know, and have a different sort of relationship to and identity with an ever expanding universe, which, of course, is another fundamental axiom of what I believe you've been pointing to all along.
1: So we're big picture thinkers and we like to look at contexts. And there are so many things that are easier to understand when, when you come from that perspective where you're always looking at the role of the individual in relation to the community as a whole. And where, you know, a few years ago, the the evolution biologist Tamsin Woolley Barker pointed out that true social species have only evolved six times in evolution. And four of them are the insects that we know about, the ants and the bees and the termites. You know? Oh, really? Right. And then and then on that leaves only two more. And the only two...
0: I'm getting beyond nervous.
1: the insect world <laughs> are blind mole
0: rats oh. which
1: live by the millions in underground colonies with very structured societies. Blind mole rats and humans. <laughs> I knew we were in there somewhere. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is this is great because she comes along at a time when evolution biologists are beginning to get that cooperation is way more important in evolution than competition, which is always there. But, uh, but sure. there's, for me personally, I started calling it a maturation cycle where, where species and whole epochs move from, from uh, comp- hostile competition. competition to mature collaboration. Yeah. And where crisis is always the opportunity from getting through that shift, which we're now in. Ourselves, and so uh, David Sloan Wilson, after E.O. Wilson, and they're all coming out with these concepts of altruism and givingness and Very sharingness true. and and cooperation, and that's why humans have been successful because these naked apes had to get together in groups in order to survive, in you know after big ice ages or during but big decent. ice ages with giant. Sure mammals. Exactly. I I
0: often say, Elizabeth, and I'd love to hear what you have to say, is that this is the origin of storytelling. It's actually the origin of art. It's Mm -hmm. the uh, beginning of theater. Uh, People had to entertain each other by the bonfire to stay warm and to enjoy each other and build social relationships, which, of course, releases oxytocin, which increases the love bond between people. So when it comes down to it, they're gonna be looking to protect each other in the face of a predator. And then it goes down another micro step to the importance of smiling and laughing and embracing, hugging as an important part of evolution. Not to they mention do, they of course, knew oxytocin.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, they, they understood oxytocin, they understood it right <laughs> long before in their they had to. That's
0: right.
1: But you know, what's interesting is that um, if you play the whole keyboard and you know you're not a body with a mind, with a soul, with yes. consciousness, but that yes. you are a body mind consciousness, you also Um, At least I had to distinguish between communication and communion. And the difference is that communion is the direct transmission of any kind of information. Interesting. Directly transmitting it without having to move a a muscle or change a a smile. No smile, no language, no talk, no writing, right? (laughs) You can commune. And the ancient peoples, of course, were doing both communion and communication. What you've just described is the onset of communication, which led to storytelling. Storytelling is something that comes from communication. And in communication, you can deceive each other. In communion, you cannot. Communion is bare naked. Communion is direct information, and it can't be distorted. Right?
0: <laughs> That's right. For, it's a, it's like it's purpose. like a
1: telepathic. Uh, what's
0: mm-hmm. that science fiction word? Uh, not like a melding, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I, mind, mind merging.
0: Mind uh, merging, right?
1: Yes, um, and heart. And of course, you know, yeah, from yeah. my experience with the UFO community and stuff, I, I find it interesting to think of UFOs as being beings in the cosmos far enough advanced so that they have relearned communion after their technological advances or never lost it. Right. And so that they can move up and down the keyboard from being visible to us as matter to being invisible to us because they can slide up into the non-material universe and everyone I know who's ever been on a spaceship and the very few people I I think I only know one person who was actually taught to drive one uh but I've heard of others and and those that learn to drive them all I knew we had
0: to talk about this they all
1: say the same thing Mitchell they merged my mind with the sauc- with the flying saucer, with the vehicle I was in. And then I could steer it through wherever I wanted to go. And, and uh, yes. I'll tell you, the, the first person, the only person I know who did this is Nassim Haramein. And oh <laughs> was like, yes, Nasim has been repeated. on the show a few times, oh. <laughs> repeatedly being out. Why and, am I not surprised? And they would make they would make him forget after these episodes, and he asked them please to let him remember one, and that was the last time he ever went out. And he remembered how they merged his mind and he, how he panicked when he was suddenly the ship and nothing was holding him up. So he, you know, exactly, was, he had to calm him down and and make him understand that this was fine and he could now go wherever everyone to go um but and i laughed and i asked nasim i said do you think that's why people see ufos going every which way in the sky is that another human kid learning <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
0: free driver's license you know um you know in uh star wars we have that phenomenon i mean i think they took it from reality ufo reality which is you know Luke Skywalker being instructed to just feel his way by you know through these like tunnel areas and Mm -hmm. to guide the ship accordingly that he cannot do something so here we come back to Taoist science if you will not to do something but rather to intend it and allow it to happen which Mm -hmm. is a whole different belt a whole different world view of course mm-hmm. to live that way
1: absolutely
0: right <laughs> so yeah. you were uncovering this as a scientist for all of these decades elizabeth and you know i'd like to actually go back to uh we're beginning to run out of time a little bit here but
1: uh oh. uh, Put put us on pause for a second. Oh, sure. Hello.
0: Okay. So there's this idea that we have that we are today in the 21st century as Western-oriented, Western-based thinkers and scientists to be the pinnacle of all knowledge, technological advance and evolution. This is one of those axioms at base in our civilization. Uh, Whether we like it or not, whether it's true or not, it's inherently embedded. So I wanted to pose the question with your vast experience of indigenous science. There we have, I understand, a level of quantum physics and understanding of mathematics that is equal to and beyond what our understanding is today. It has given rise to different types of technologies as well. Going back to the Australian Aboriginal, to ancient Chinese, ancient Tibetan, Vedic, as you mentioned earlier, shamanic, north american native cultures that really have never been given the light of day but when given we see that they are actually as if not as i said more advanced just take the doggone understanding of serious linear b it was not possible for them to have an understanding and a knowledge based on our worldview as Western thinkers, but indeed they did. And it was actually rather elegant and sophisticated. So if you could just take a moment here and explain, Elizabeth, how that operates, how that interfaces with our world perspective as Westerners.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I love that you brought that up because uh, as I say, they they had access to both communion and communication you see yeah. so they could get in from the inside they could do what we call meditation uh, you know i mean we have to teach ourselves to go inside <laughs> and to get information that way but every great scientific discovery uh, that generally has been admitted to have been downloaded from the inside dreams right? visions <laughs> dreams, visions, Delta. knowing that, that deep knowingness uh, of, of how things work. And so, you know, biologically, one of the things that happened with the, the brain size explosion in, in the history of humanity as we trace it biologically mm-hmm. was that we gave up the knowledge of how to do things to get along in life, the knowledge of how to acquire food and water and mates and divide territory and raise kids and govern ourselves, which other animal species know how to do, was lost in favor of the freedom of choice. And so the great, the mm-hmm. great gift and responsibility of human evolution is to make those choices wisely to make those choices well to all our benefit. Mm-hmm. Now, nine over 90%, uh, well over 90% of hu- what we call the history of humanity biologically, we were hunter-gatherers where we didn't mess nature up beyond spitting pits along our hunting paths to, so that we'd have extra fruit there or whatever, right? which was a kind of planting. Natural, easy agriculture and discovering roast pig after a forest fire and then doing it yourself, you know, it's like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, but this, this communion was given up in Western society, particularly not all humans did give it up. And, and I know of no indigenous culture that gave it up entirely, the ability to commune. So, but these hunter-gatherer societies were extremely egalitarian and extremely stable over long periods of time. At least some of them have survived to this day, you know, in in Africa and in Australia. Um, And they had a lot going for them, but deviance was suppressed, more or less. You didn't want the reason why they, they dissed the hunter of the, who, who killed the biggest animal and said, what a bag of bones you got there, you know, <laughs> was so that he wouldn't get a fat ego and try to make himself more important than other people. Yes, interesting. And so there was a cap on how much ingenuity and, and individualism could happen in those cultures. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, the peak indigenous cultures were those in the Andes, and, uh, and in Mexico, some of these high Inca and, and uh, Mayan. Other civilization, Mayan civilizations. And then the Haudenosaunee Indians on the turf of the Hudson River, right? The, which oh, is yes. basically Mohawk territory. Yes. They were the only ones, to my knowledge, ever to devise a true democracy. And of course, they had it going on the very turf that was taken over by the founding fathers from Europe who sat on their land thinking up their own constitution. And only one of them really studied the Haudenosaunee Great Law of Peace, and that was Ben Franklin.
0: Franklin.
1: And so Ben Franklin really got it that they had kept peace for a thousand years after making peace among six nations, right, that they could hold that peace for a long time. And he brought back all this information. And the only thing the founding fathers adopted for the uh, U.S. Constitution was the tripartite government of checks and balances. You know, this was pretty sophisticated stuff that they included. But you know what they left out? Women, children, nature and the future. Trivia? I don't think so.
0: (laughs) I've been decrying that omission, Elizabeth, for a long time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So here we, isn't it fascinating that right under our noses, there was an actual democracy that was better than the one put, that was written by men who wrote it to protect property. And I think more and more people now are really recognizing in this, uh, in this transition time when we're moving out of hostile competition into mature cooperation Mm -hmm. uh, that we're recognizing that maybe the first thing that went wrong happened through domesticating plants and animals in agriculture where land areas became important and ownership came in and it was allowing each other to claim land ownership that was the beginning of inequities. And did we have to go through that? Maybe we did have to go through this whole 6,000 years now of empire building mode, top-down authority empire building. And that's we're now in the middle of the last gasp of this empire building where
0: certain,
1: certain patriarchs are building, trying to, to develop a true global why do you call it? Empire, right? A true global empire. While many of us are seeing through that plan and getting, no, there's something about our individuation, our ability to see big pictures individually and to share stories of them and to talk to each other about what is our responsibility. And can we weave this enormous individuation that we've achieved back into a cooperative mode at a global level. That's the real challenge now.
0: Oh, that is so well put. That is so well put. You know, I so appreciate all that you're saying here in this last section of today's interview. Uh, I'm reminded of one of my favorite books of all time, Ishmael, which tells the story from a point of view that none of us is allowed to disclose. (laughs) It's that secret, that tacit agreement all readers of that book come to uh, so as not to, you know, give it away, so to speak. Uh, But one of the fundamental foundational points is that when man divided up land, was the beginning of the end because it was then that ego, control, power, ownership, as you said, uh, serfdom, turfdom, uh, wars, wars, Wars. male-female hierarchy, serfs, slaves, all of it began Me, you, instead of we, us, all of this emerged out of that space. And we've been paying the dearest price ever since. And it is just the opposite, as I understand, of indigenous wisdom and understanding and approach. You got
1: it. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. If we could give up land ownership and warfare, militarization, developing weapons, building weapons, we would free up so much creativity, so much creativity. And, and but we've got to make caring and sharing as exciting as warfare has been. You see, that's very yeah. interesting because yeah. you, you catch young men in adolescence with, with things that are loud and noisy and move fast to go bang, bang, blow. Testosterone <laughs> over the top. you got to do something with that testosterone and channel it. And that's the ancient Greeks were brilliant about confining Boy. competition to sports right to and to recognizing that the point of sports is to drive excellence in each other yeah and so if I could close with a little story from my trip to China in 1973 I was taken to a basketball game in China and there it was played exactly the way we play it so I could follow the game and so my my host stood up and cheered when the first basket was made I said, oh, okay, now I know you know which team to cheer for. And But the second basket was made by the other team and he got up with equal enthusiasm applauding. Oh, wow. And this went on and through the interpreter, I, I said, which team is yours? And he said, what do you mean? I said, which team do you want to win? He said, how do I know which one will win? And I said, well, don't you have a chosen team? He said, "No, why would I?" And <laughs> and then you know I got the explanation. And Mao actually wrote an essay on on uh, this subject of cooperation, <laughs> and and uh, uh, that the point of the sport is to drive excellence. And I actually tried a school to try, don't say anything to the teams, but coach the parents before the game tonight. We're going to cheer excellence. You're going to cheer for everybody who makes a point on both sides and the team that makes the most points is going to give a party for the other team to thank them for driving them to the extra excellence. That is beautiful. What if we did this in our school?
0: God, Elizabeth. (laughs) I love it. You know, I'm a tennis player and a paddle tennis player. It's a sort of an urbanized version of tennis. And uh, I play as often as I can. And I've got to say, there is that attitude that you've just so well described. We go with our full hearts and minds and bodies to win. And we know that we want to play people who are as excellent as possible to sharpen our wits and skill set. And during the game, as well as after the game we are always acknowledging the beautiful shot or beautiful point the other person on the other team made as well as our own partner in other words it's this this cooperative field of i'm going to say love and communion as well as some communication you know so you really hit it. That is a beautiful story about the basketball in China. I did not know that, and I'm thrilled to hear it. Well, you know, you and I are going to have to pick this ball up—no pun intended—and run with it, uh, because there's so much more to share. And you have just brought so much intelligence, and creativity, and heartfelt commitment to creating a better world, if you will, to forward that i just want to acknowledge you for that and a life committed to positive outcomes for our species and for all species for that matter all sentient life and um from my heart i thank you
1: Aho to that
0: i <laughs> and we will continue i'll have you on again thank you aloha aloha Wow, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, Elizabeth uh, Satoris, evolution biologist, and a lot more bringing to bear the importance of indigenous cultures, of language, of science, both Western and Vedic and Taoist to the forefront for us to have a larger, more comprehensive understanding with our minds and our hearts and our bodies of what this game is all about so thanks so much for joining us this is mitchell j raven for a better world and i look forward to seeing you all next week